Good morning. My name's Eva. This morning our scripture reading is from Psalms. Please follow along in your Bible or use the screens. I'll be reading Psalms 81, verses 1 through 16 from the New Revised Standard Version. Sing aloud to God our strength. Shout for joy to the God of Jacob. Raise a song, sound the tambourine, the sweet lyre with the harp. Blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon, on our festal day. For it is a statute for Israel, an ordinance of the God of Jacob. He made it a decree in Joseph when he went out over the land of Egypt. I hear a voice I had not known. I relieved your shoulder of the burden. Your hands were freed from the basket. In distress you called, and I rescued you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. Hear, O my people, while I admonish you. O Israel, if you would but listen to me, there shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. Then I would quickly subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe before him and their doom would last forever. I would feed you with the finest of wheat, and with the honey from the rock I would satisfy you. The word of the Lord. Well, my name is Brent. I'm the youth pastor here at Evergreen, and I will be sharing this sermon with you this morning. But first, let's pray. Holy God, meet us today where we are at. Give us what we need. I pray, God, that the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth would be pleasing to you. I pray this, Lord, in your holy name. Amen. <clears throat> so Psalm 81 contains a lament in it. And this lament is from God grieving over Israel's sins. Let's look at verses 11 through 13. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. God here is grieving over Israel's sins in the desert. It says in verse 7 that after God freed the Israelites from Egypt, he tested them at the waters of Meribah. Well, the waters of Meribah is an event that happens in the book of Numbers. You see, after the Israelites are freed from Egypt, a few weeks go by, and they find themselves wandering aimlessly in the desert. They've already had a few disappointments, and they begin to be very thirsty because they haven't had water in a while. Their livestock are thirsty, and they are thirsty. So they go before Moses and Aaron, and they complain to them, saying, it would have been better for us to have died in Egypt than to be in the desert here starving. So, after hearing this, Moses and Aaron, in turn, go to God. They kneel before God in a tent, and they ask God, what should we do? And God says, what you're going to do is go to a certain rock, 
where the Israelites are camped, and you will stand before that rock, raise your staff, and say, I command the waters to come out of this rock. And by doing that, you will give glory to God. So Moses and Aaron go back to the Israelites where they are camped. But instead, Moses says something a little different. He says, listen, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And then he plunges his staff in and water comes out. See, the difference there is that Moses was supposed to give the glory to God, and thereby the Israelites would know that God is powerful. But in anger, he said, shall we, meaning Moses and Aaron, bring water out of this rock? Psalm 81 mentions the waters of Meribah because it is a great and classic example of when Israel and Moses forgot to listen to God. The Israelites actually forget about God far more times in between being freed from Egypt and the waters of Meribah. See, right after they're freed from Egypt and they witness these 10 powerful plagues, really powerful stuff like the Red Sea turning to blood and having hail come down and frogs everywhere, after these amazing plagues and clearly God is evident, the Israelites start praising God and they're amazed at all of God's power. The Israelites are freed And uh, by the time they get to the Red Sea, Pharaoh's heart has changed, and he decides to send an army after them. And even though the Israelites have witnessed all these powerful things, they complain to Moses and Aaron, saying, oh, it would have been better for us to have stayed and died in Egypt than be here. Despite their lack of faith, and despite the fact that they forgot God, God decides to part the Red Sea for them. They go across the Red Sea, and just after the Israelites cross, the Red Sea crashes back over Pharaoh's army. Once again, the Israelites praise God. They're amazed at what God has done, and they are joyous. And then a few days go by, and they come to Mount Horeb. And Moses goes up to talk to God and to get the Ten Commandments. And it takes a while, and because the Israelites are anxious, they again forget about God. And then they make a golden calf. Moses comes down. He's furiated that they made this golden calf, People are punished. They repent. They return to God. And then what do they do a few days later? Um, We know a few days later, the waters of Moribah happens that I just mentioned. So Israelite continues this rhythm throughout the whole time in the desert. They keep on turning to God and then forgetting about God's power. And they actually say multiple times, it would have been better for us to have died in Egypt. Well, in response to Israel's constant complaining, God condemns Israel to wander around in the desert for 40 years until the entire generation of Israelites die out and their kids take over. And then they can enter the promised land. And Moses, too, because in a moment of passion strikes the rock, is denied entering the promised land. The rhythm of the wilderness Wandering gets old after a while. I remember when I first heard this story in Sunday school, I thought, come on, really? How could you witness all these powerful things? How could you see a, the Red Sea part and walk through it and then forget about God and make a golden calf? And I, I remember as a kid that I kind of just trivialized the story, and I thought, these, these people are really dense. It wouldn't, uh, it wouldn't be that hard to remember the Red Sea parting. I mean, come on. But I think if we stop and look at this story more, we should start to ask the question, are we really that different? 
How strong is our faith? If we were there, would we remember God's works? And I think if we're honest, it would actually be a little bit hard. I think being the standard individual in the Israelite camp, it would have been pretty hard to not forget what God had done. In their hearts, they probably felt helpless. Maybe they felt vindicated in their complaining. To some, for some reason, the golden calf even made sense. I mean, after all, what idols do we turn to in our moments of weakness just because it feels good at the time? Israel doesn't just keep up this rhythm in the desert, but this rhythm continues throughout the whole Bible. That's basically the story of the Bible. In the first three chapters, we have humans in perfect relationship with God, knowing who God is, and then for the rest of the Bible, humans keep on forgetting God, keep on forgetting they're supposed to be in relationship with God and wandering away. So why do people forget about God so easily? I think this is a question a lot of us have asked when we read Scripture. I think one element that is at work at here is called group dynamics. Group dynamics is a term psychologists use to describe the behaviors that happen within a group of people. The underlying premise is that if you put a bunch of individuals together in a group, the group takes on a life of its own. The whole is greater than a sum of its parts. Psychologists use a term called the group brain or the hive mind. The idea is that when we come together, the conclusions that we get in a group setting are different than if we were just on our own. So if you look at this slide, you can see in one box we have one line. In the other box, there's three lines of different sizes. And one of the lines in the box that has three lines is the same size as the box that has one line. Uh, psychologist Solomon Ash used this experiment. He got a whole bunch of different individuals, and he just asked them the simple question, which line in the box is the same as the line in the box that just has one line? And almost every single person said the correct answer. And then he did the experiment again, and he got a big group of people this time, and instead of asking people individually, he asked them to first discuss it as a group and have rationales for why uh, they thought what they thought. But he planted a few people in this group that would purposely mislead the group for the wrong answer. And then after discussing it, then he interviewed each person individually. And 75% of people chose the wrong line. That's what the group mind does to us. We just think, well, if everyone else says that, it must be it. There must be something wrong with the way I perceive the world. Well, group dynamics affect us in a lot more ways than this. So uh, there you see, that's a picture of me and my wife, and I'm wearing an animal shirt, and I'm going to get to that in a second. It will make sense. And uh, that is a picture of me wearing a plaid shirt, one of my favorite plaid shirts. I will also get to that. So a few people before in my life, have described me as a hipster. If you are wondering what a hipster is, it's kind of like a certain personality type, I guess you could say, that um, has come around in the last five years or so. Generally, people that are labeled as hipsters like to shop at thrift stores. They usually like plaid shirts and sweaters, and um, they like things like beards, which I like the idea of, but I'm not able to grow one. Um, 
Hipsters generally like nature and going on hikes and whatnot, but they also like to be urban and live in the city. There's actually something really interesting. Uh, the, pheno- the phenomenon of hipsters has led to people in the city that live in the city buying uh, little axes to put on their belt just to like look woodsy, even if they never use them. Um, and also hipsters generally like folk music, alternative music, and good coffee and good food. So when you put all those things together, I guess that does kind of describe a lot of things that I like. But honestly, I don't feel like I was following a trend. I feel like I came to these things on my own. So I have a bit of a funny story for you. When I was in high school, uh, I came to school really early one morning. Uh, I'm not sure why. I wouldn't normally do that. But for some reason, I found myself at school, and there was like an hour before school. So me and my friend went to uh, get coffee, even though I didn't really drink coffee. And I started to drink the coffee, but it got too hot, and I accidentally spilled all over my white shirt. And I was like, well, what am I going to do now that I have this completely stained shirt? I can't just go through school like this. And I only had a few dollars, but my friend suggested I could go to the thrift store and buy a shirt there. And I'd never done that, but I said, okay, why not? And I went to the thrift store, and lo and behold, for $3, I got that exact plaid shirt. And I was just wearing it throughout the day uh, at school, and eventually I was like, I kind of like this. This is kind of cool. And then, so just the next time I needed to buy clothing, I went to the thrift store again. I got more plaid and sweaters and stuff like that. And so that's how that came about. Also, ever since I was a little kid, I loved nature. My family would always go hiking and camping. So that's where that came. And um, as far as liking folk music, I don't know how that happened. It just happened. But the point is that all these different little things that make a hipster a hipster, kind of I got to on my own. At least that's how I perceive things. And then another thing that's interesting is that when I got to college, I found there were thousands of other people just like me. Um, my grandma always told me to, uh, to march to a rhythm. What did she say? To march to a rhythm of my own drum or something like that. You get the picture. Um, and to take the path less traveled on. So That's what I thought I was doing. I thought I was just doing my own thing. But then suddenly I got to college, and I'm like, oh, look, all those other people interested in the same thing as me. How did that happen? And what I think is interesting is probably, for the thousands of hipsters out there, they honestly felt like they came to who they are, what they like, on their own. But group dynamics is such that it's a force beyond the individual. There's a force beyond the individual that drives culture. Group dynamics really does affect us in all sorts of ways. Um, So think about the styles we've had throughout the generations. There was the 90s. We also had the 80s. There was the 70s. Um, That's a picture of my dad in the 70s. And 60s and 50s. And of course it goes on and on. But each generation had their own style. And it wasn't just about clothing. It was a mindset. It was a worldview. Each generation has their own opinions, their own likes and dislikes, their own music they like to listen to, and even their own prejudices. This is what happens with generations. And 
I doubt if you ask any individual in a generation, they'll say, oh, I picked up a magazine and it told me this is exactly what I should do. It's like this crazy um, force that just drives us and we just get caught up in it. And I think that most people are probably more a product of their generation than they'd like to admit. So here we have a picture of a cantaloupe. Now this is a bit of a weird story. Um, Group dynamics now is taking on a whole new phenomenon now that we have social media. So one day, a person posted a picture of a cantaloupe like this on Instagram, and they said, isn't this so gross? Look at the holes in the seeds. It's just so gross. It reminds me of really gross things. And another person was like, yeah, that is really gross. And then they posted a picture of barnacles. And pretty soon, everyone was posting pictures um, of a bunch of things in nature that have little clustered holes. And now there is a fear of things that have holes. There's like 7,000 people that belong to the tripophobic, um, which means fear of holes, apparently, Facebook group on Facebook, okay? Tragically, beyond things like fears, social media has actually, in a devastating way, spread eating disorders and self-harm in a similar manner. Um, A study by Harvard Medical School was done on girls in Fiji. Fiji, it turns out, is a great place to study how media affects people because in Fiji, in the urban centers, 95% of people have access to TV. But in the villages, only 8% have access to TV. So it's a great place to see what TV does to us. And they surveyed girls in places where they had access to TV and places where there wasn't TV. And what they found was that girls that had access to TV were 60% more likely to have eating disorders. As humans, we are easily impressionable. We get caught up in systems outside of us and we let those things define our identity and our actions. And then when we make up our mind based on these outside things, we trust in our heart and mind that this is an innate, natural part of ourselves and that we have come to these things on our own conclusion. Sadly, the girls in this study honestly believed something was wrong with their body because of how the media had influenced them. Walter Wink, in his book Engaging the Powers That Be, talks about mob violence. This is a picture of the L.A. riots of 1992. Uh, In the book, he looks at different people that participated in the riots and interviewed them and asked them what was going on through your mind. And what he found is that most of the people who participated in the riots were normal, everyday people who had various jobs. And uh, the people that were interviewed said they were so angry about the verdict that it was as if an outside force came in and swept them up into the violence that the mob was doing. One person actually shared that as things were escalating, they found themselves picking up a chair and smashing a window, and they felt within their heart this sort of holy, righteous passion, and they felt like it was the right thing to do. And then right afterwards, they asked themselves, why did I do that? That doesn't make any sense. That's not who I am. I don't want to vandalize things. 
often you hear that phrase, why did I do that? Why did this happen? So often we ask that question, how could this happen? We ask that question when we learn about eating disorders. The man in the riot asked that question after the riot was over. And I think tragic things can happen because we are not the strong individuals that we think we are. We are so susceptible to the climate around us. Remember, in the not-so-distant past, people of color were not allowed to eat at the same restaurants as white people. And people actually thought in their hearts and minds that this was natural and the way things should be. Really? How could that happen? Every generation seems to have its own blind spots, its own sins. So a good question to think about is what will people say in 60 years from now about our generation? What are our blind spots? What are things that we don't see? I think sometimes we end up just surrounding ourselves with people who think the same things that we do. So whenever a hot topic comes up, we just sound off of each other and then we become more convinced. Instead of actually taking time to analyze, is what we think the right thing? How different are we from the generation of Israelites that wandered in the wilderness? What assumptions do we not question? Why are we so influenced by the group mind? Well, I think it is because we were created this way. Last week, Julie talked about how we were created in the image of God. Well, one of the implications of this is that we were created in the image of the Trinity. Now, the Trinity is this crazy concept that I haven't grasped, and I don't think anyone ever quite will. Hopefully we will uh, in heaven, but on this side it's pretty hard to grasp. But just think about it. God knows God's self through God's self. God defines himself through his relationship to the Son and his relationship to the Holy Spirit and vice versa. And Jesus defines himself <clears throat> through his relationship to God. So when we say God is love, we're not just saying God has a quality of love, but actually how God relates to Jesus is love. They're so in love, so in relationship with each other that these three personalities cease to be one person and they're actually one essence. That is love. And that is the image that we, sorry, that is the image that we are created in. This means we're not created to define our identity through our individuality. We're actually created to define our reality and our identity by who we're in relationship to. Now, the way God created the world in the beginning, we're supposed to define our worth and our identity through our relationship to God. We are supposed to look to God for our worth. We're supposed to look to God for how to live. We're supposed to look to God for our worldview and our reality. But as we know, the fall messed this up. When the serpent tempted Eve, I don't think he was tempting her merely just to eat from the tree to figure out what was good and evil. Because Adam and Eve already knew what was right and wrong. They knew it was right to not eat from the tree, as God said, and they knew it was wrong to eat from the tree. I think what the serpent was doing when he tempted Eve is he tempted her to think that she could decide for herself what was good and bad. The temptation was that humans were competent enough, strong enough, rational enough to figure out what to do in life on their own. 
because we decided to look towards ourselves to determine what is good and evil, and because we thought we could do it apart from God, God ends up banishing humanity from the garden and gives them what they want. A world where humans can decide for themselves what is good and bad. A world where humans can look to their own hearts to decide what to do in life. And we know how that is gone. The lie that Eva was told was that she could be an individual and find her identity apart from God. We are less in control of our identity than we think. See, we still depend on things outside of ourselves to determine our reality. It's just instead of God, we let other things determine our reality. This is what I believed happened to the generation of Israelites that wandered in the wilderness. Group mentality was simply too strong. Instead of looking towards their God, they looked towards each other. Remember, God says in Psalm 81 that if they would but listen to me, their enemies would be destroyed. They would be in peace and have everything they want. I believe after escaping Egypt, Israel would witness a miracle. They'd be amazed by God's power. Filled with awe and wonder, they would turn to God and praise God. But as days went by afterwards, people would start to talk to each other. People would start to doubt a little here and doubt a little there. And as they talked to each other, the doubt would increase. And they would start to get angry and start to complain. And soon, group consensus became so high that they would feel in their hearts they were vindicated for being angry with God and so vindicated that it even made sense to make a golden calf. This is why I think the catchphrase that we hear on the Disney Channel all the time is dangerous. The whole idea you usually see on these shows is to follow your heart, to follow your intuition. Well, a lot of people have been following their heart ever since Eve decided to grab that apple and it hasn't really done this world that much good. Notice what it says in verse 11 through 13 of our psalm, Psalm 81. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. Instead of looking to God, they looked to their own hearts, which had become stubborn because they listened to their own advice in their own counsels. Tragically, God knew at a certain point that the generation he freed from Egypt had developed such a strong group mind, such a strong group consensus that they were deaf to his voice. He knew individuals had given up too much of their identity to the whole, so he has to condemn the entire generation to wander in the desert. Although this psalm seems to end on a tragic note, I think there's an implied hope. This psalm was written to people afterwards. After lamenting that Israel did not listen to God, this psalm ends with a hope that the people who are reading the psalm now have a chance to walk with God and to stop listening to outside voices. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. Then I would quickly subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe before him, and their doom would last forever. I would feed you with the finest of the wheat, and with the honey from the rock I would satisfy you. Yes, we are weak. 
We are not that strong or competent or rational as we think we are. But our hope is in returning to God. The power of grace is in admitting our weakness. When we accept Jesus, when we ask for Jesus' grace and he gives it to us, we ask Jesus to rescue us from that which corrupts our identity and to become the new basis for identity. We admit that we're not that strong, we are not an individual on our own, and that we do define ourselves solely on relationship, and then we ask Jesus to help us be defined solely by him. As we stay connected to Jesus, we need to create time to listen to God. If we do not create time to listen to God and pay attention to what he's saying, we run the risk of forgetting our relationship with him and turning away from him like the Israelites in the, in the wilderness. Listening to God, I think, is more about the way we live and less about just sitting down to have quiet time. Now, although it is very important to sit down and have quiet time, um, that's not all. Listening to God is about having God be every part of our life. Paul says that we must pray continually without ceasing. Well, how do you do that? Obviously, you can't just fold your hands, sit down, close your eyes, and pray continually. You have to do things. You have to eat and have a job and play soccer and everything else that humans do, right? Well, pray continually without ceasing means that make everything a prayer to God. Make everything in your life a prayer to God. Focus on God and have God be the most important thing in your life. Um, There's so many times throughout the day that we could turn to God, that we could think about God, that we could make God the focus, and we don't. I know for myself, one of my distractions is my phone. So often, whenever I have in-between times uh, throughout the day, instead of thinking about God or being introspective and just reflecting on my life, I just turn to my phone and I play a game, or I look at Facebook, or I look at Instagram, or something like that. And when I'm talking about in-between times, I'm talking about you're going to go hang out with a friend, and your car's parked, and you're waiting for them to come down. Or uh, in-between meal times, maybe uh, your spouse or someone else is doing the dishes, or something like that. Just in the in-between times, thinking about God. Uh, the, the reason why I mention this is the other day when me and Eva were talking, uh, she had just, I can't remember what she was doing. I think she had taken the garbage out, and I was on my phone. And then she came in, and she was talking to me. And I was like, oh, just a second, I'm reading this BuzzFeed article. And <laughs> I do that all the time, right? And we do that to people we love, but we also do that to God. So we need to take time to focus on God. And it doesn't have to be something hard, but I think that we just need to put triggers in our lives, times throughout the day where we pay attention to God, where we read scripture. I think a really good advice I got is to double up. Just take things in your life that you already do. Let's say you exercise or you have a routine in the morning where you drink coffee. And then place God into that. While you're exercising or stretching, Think. take some time to pray to God. When you're having coffee, take some time to pray to God. 
Having a life focused on Jesus isn't just about Jesus being the number one thing in your life. It's about Jesus being preeminent, about Jesus being every aspect of your life. It's like putting on sunglasses. When you put on sunglasses, it changes your perception of everything around you. It changes the tint of everything around you. A life focused on God means that we're putting on new lenses, and everything we see, we see through the lens of how does this honor God. Lastly, as we partake in communion, we commit as individuals and as a body to base our identity on Jesus. In communion, by taking the body and dipping it into the blood, by taking the bread and dipping it into the cup, we remember that Jesus died for us on the cross. He took all the things that we let define ourselves and he nailed them to the cross so that we might become a new creation. When we take communion, we pray to Jesus and we ask that he might destroy the barriers that we have created within our community because of the segregated groups we belong to. And we trust that by his blood, we will be united as his body. Amen.